So if, if there's something that I'm talking about and I kind of refer to his sermon and you, you didn't listen to his sermon and you're not quite sure the information, it'd be good to go back and listen to his sermon on Isaiah 6. Uh, that would be a great one. Uh, and then there's more. If you go back one more week and listen to Tim's sermon on Mark 9, it will be also really good. Um, but this, this sermon kind of can hit home in a lot of ways because it's a sermon on sin. And it's, a, it's a something we don't talk about a lot. Um, there, there's very good reasons why we don't talk about it a lot, and we'll, we'll get to that. But it can be a hard thing to talk about. Um, it can be a hard thing for us to share with one another. So uh, if you feel a little uncomfortable, it's okay, because I'm probably feeling just as uncomfortable talking about this, even in prepping for this sermon. Um, there were some uncomfortable moments. So it's not uncommon or weird to feel uncomfortable when talking about sin, uh, especially when you start getting into real detail about it or in real depth. Um, so let's open up with a word of prayer. And then we'll get started. Father, I pray that your words speak through me. I pray that we can hear um, what you have in the scriptures for us. Um, we pray that um, Jesus' words are clear to us today. That we can hear um, what he said and the meanings behind it and the words behind it. But we pray that um, we also see your grace in this. And we see that your glory is unfolded through our sin, and that we are made new because we need it. So Father, we pray that uh, this morning, that your true words come through and speak into our hearts. We pray all this in your Son's holy and precious name. Amen. It was a Sunday morning. I loved Sunday mornings. My familiar pew, my favorite hymn, pastor's mildly entertaining third point, and the unmistakable unique sound of Sawing? Quite clear from the pew behind, it seems, the tight rasp and rough grind of a saw. There in church on a Sunday morning, I turned to look and my eyes grew. A middle-aged man with a receding hairline bending far over, reaching toward the floor in front of him. I looked closer and my eyes grew. He was working awkwardly at his right ankle with a red-handled silver-toothed hacksaw. The cotton of his right tan dress sock began to shred and mingled with the flesh of his right ankle. Dark blood pulsed out, slowly darkening his sock and spilling thickly onto the gray, all-purpose sanctuary carpet. Are you quite all right? He asked, quite sincerely, looking up at me and my gagging face. Well, that's a, that's a pretty interesting image of somebody sitting in church sawing off their ankle. It's a pretty gruesome thought, but that, that image, and that comes from a book um, called How, um, The Smell of Sin by Don Everts, and a lot of the imagery I'm going to use comes from his book, but that's not his image. He wrote that, but the thing is, Jesus is the one who said that. We're going to look at that, but before we do, we have to realize what kind of pain you probably would go through. And, uh, and I want to share something. There's this guy. Does anyone know who this is? You've probably heard the story. I see some recognition. This guy, this is Aaron Ralston. He's a climber. And he was climbing by himself. And his hand got trapped under a boulder. And he, he waited. 
and waited, hoping somebody would find him. And eventually, when he was dehydrated and he was starting to get to the end of his rope, he took his utility knife and he, he cut off his hand to escape. And he rappelled down and he survived. And he still climbs to this day. But they asked him about that. And he said he didn't really feel much for most of it because he had already lost a lot of feeling. But there's a moment where there is pain, and I'm not going to go into the details of that. I think we got enough with that other story, but he, he said there's severe pain in this. So when we look at these things, sawing off your, your ankle, sawing off your hand, that's kind of a, an odd thing. But this is what Jesus says. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. So Jesus says if if something's causing you to sin, completely cut it out of your life, whether it's a hand, a foot, an eye. I think that's kind of weird. I, mean, I don't want to. I don't want to say Jesus was wrong, but that's just a really, really violent thing to do to cut sin out of my life. And so we can understand this that that he probably didn't mean literally, but Jesus is the great communicator. Jesus knew exactly what he was saying here. And if we doubt him, we can look earlier in Matthew and see this. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than go than that your whole body go into hell. All right, so now he said it twice in the same gospel account. Um, if, you, if you go through different gospels, okay, it could have been the same account time he said it, but Matthew's putting this down. It it was not just once that Jesus talked about this and talked about really going to a step that is is far beyond what I think any of us would consider. And and it's not the only thing he talks about because just before that one, he says this, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of of the sea. So Jesus is throwing these big things that that are result in lots of pain or death out at us. Um, I, I don't know about you, but I'd rather cause someone to sin than be tied to a millstone and thrown into the sea. And and I think that there's maybe some level difference between my thoughts about sin and Jesus's thoughts about sin. And this, this is a quote that Don Evert says, either I'm grossly overestimating how utterly terrible it would be to be drowned, or I'm woefully underestimating just how bad sin really is. So when we look at these stories and we look at what Jesus says, are we missing the point? Are we missing how bad sin really is? Because here's stories of death, dismemberment, that Jesus says are better than sin. So I think we need to take a harder look at what sin is. So the Greek word used in the New Testament is harmatia, and literally that just means 
to miss the mark. So we can understand that. It's to miss the mark. What is the mark? That's the question. Well, the mark is God's holiness. And we're not going to go too much into God's holiness because this is where you can go back and listen to Taylor's sermon because that was what his sermon was on. And that is important. And it is vitally important that we understand that God is holy. He is very different from us. And God created the world. The world was perfect. And if we were still in that perfect world, we could dwell in communion with God. We could walk with him in the garden. And there'd be no problem. But sin separates us. And it doesn't separate us this small distance. It completely removes us from the picture from God's holiness. And that is a big distance that we can't even fathom. So we can go in a little more detail about what the mark is because there are guidelines. So these are my shortened versions of the Ten Commandments to remind us of them and to get through it a little quicker. So there's only one God. God is God and and no one else is God. And in the same tone, there, there should be no idols. Nothing set before God or between us and God. Don't take the name of the Lord in vain. And remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Now those all deal with the holiness of God, but it goes on. Honor your father and mother. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness and do not covet. All of these deal with how we interact with one another. So both of those are important. And in fact, Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. He summarized all 10 of these in a way that we can understand. Now, if we look at these, we can go, well, you know, I've not killed anybody. I haven't stolen anything, so I'm okay, right? Well, that's, that's not what Jesus says. Jesus says this, You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Okay, that sounds about right. I haven't killed anybody, so I'm not under judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Okay, now I'm thinking that maybe I've broken that commandment. But Jesus goes on and he starts talking about other commandments, and he does the same thing with all of them. And I I have that question, and I I will probably say, I have broken all ten this morning since I woke up, and I think that all of us have. But there's a disconnect between how we see it and how it truly is. There's a disconnect that we have in our own lives where we don't necessarily believe that. Uh, and, And in fact, Derek Webb asked this question. If you can sit here and you can say, yeah, I'm, I'm sinful. The Bible says I'm sinful. But you can't honestly point your finger at one sin you've committed today. Then maybe we don't understand sin. We don't quite understand the importance of the cross. And that is extremely important. Now when we look around us, we look at society and what society says, society, and, and when we're talking society, we're going to talk American society because there's a very different view in the rest of the world. American society really says that sin is a myth. 
Sin gets put up there with all the other myths that we believe. It's like a unicorn. It doesn't exist. And that's what American society says. And the American church, in some ways, is affected by that and buys into that. And that's a very difficult thing for us to be able to say to ourselves, let alone to the community around us. Because we have to be able to say to ourselves that sin is real. And we can verbally say it, but we have to know it, that it is real. So when we say that and we say it's not a myth, it's not something unbelievable, well, what is sin like? And for that, we'll go to another story. A glass of milk, white and cold and ready to do the body good is forgotten. Forgotten. Busy kitchen, crowded Christmas time, counter with bows and wrapping paper and keys and forgotten milk. Milk festering, hardening, clumping in anger. The poor boy strolled unnoticed into the kitchen with a cold and a stuffed up nose, innocent eyes, and an afternoon snack of milk chunks. It's kind of a weird story. But wait, there's more. Forgotten milk sits guarded. Young man, don't you even get near that glass of milk. His young body shrugs defensively, but his eyes grow wide and pure and long. Young man, stop staring. That milk is so bad for you, it's rotten. No shrug this time, just seemingly averted eyes and a growing longing and an afternoon snack of milk chunks. Forgotten milk found. Found and celebrated. Celebrated and spotlighted and interviewed and admired and photographed and loved and sung about oh so beautifully. Ah, forgotten milk. Those subtle mixes of white and off-white. The complex struggle between liquid and solid. The time of prude spurning quietly endured forever over. Oh, glass of complexity. Oh, evolution of milk. Oh, afternoon snack of milk chunks. I'm getting ooze from the kids down here, and that, that's right. I hope you didn't leave your milk out, because your parents might make you drink it. Maybe not. But that's what sin is like. We let it sit there, and we, we grab a sip every now and then, and then eventually we get to the point where we celebrate it. And that's a, that's a crazy thing. So when we look at sin, we can see sin in, in varying ways, and these are just a couple of them. I think one of the ways that a lot of us see sin is a set of rules that we're to follow, And we sit there and we follow them and we see people around us not following them and having a lot of fun. And we think, well, you know, I really want to fit in with my friends that that aren't believers. So you bend the rules and you you break little little by little. We kind of go through that first stage where we are breaking these rules bit by bit to to blend in, thinking, well, God's not going to care. Or we see breaking the rules as fun. Some of us think that, I mean... Look at all the people who like speeding down the highway. That's breaking a rule. Some people just love to go fast, and, and it, it really doesn't matter about the rule, but it's fun. And, and we see sin as fun. We see these things as things that they're great, and we're being kept from them. But that's not what sin is like. Sin, sin isn't a fun thing, and we're not set up with these rules by God to keep us from something. We're set up by these rules from God to lead us to something better. Because here's the thing, without those rules, without us following that, we can't get close to a holy God. We can't get close to eternity with him in heaven. So, 
kind of important. My roommate in college said that, that sin was like not showering. That's kind of weird. But this is his point. is like you go a day without a shower, you feel it. You go two days without shower, okay, you're, you're a little grimy. You go three days and you're, you're kind of over it. And by four days, you're just like, whatever, I don't care. And that's how it is. We break the rules and we're like, the first time, it's like, ah, oh, shouldn't have done that. The second time, it's like, oh, I really shouldn't have done that. And then by the third time, you just don't care. And you keep going. And you keep drinking those milk chunks. And that's kind of a weird thing to, to think about, but we do that. We justify our sin. We say it's not that bad, and then all of a sudden it's really bad. Because every little step leads us down a road that leads to something else, to something else, to something really bad. So if it's not those, what is it? I mean, that's how we see sin. But how does Jesus see sin? We're going to look at two passages. And I'll just give you the the passages up here. But uh, Matthew 21, and, and you'll know these stories but Matthew 21, verses 28 to 30. What do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same, and he answered, I go, sir. But he did not go. And if we turn to Luke 15, this is an even more familiar story in verse 11 and 12. And and I imagine this is the same guy. And he said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Now we see these stories, and we hear them all the time. We hear these stories a lot. We forget the meaning of it because we aren't there. We aren't Jewish in a society that you were known based on who your father was. Jesus was known because of his father. We see that in the stories when, when they ask who he is. Isn't this Joseph's son? Jesus was known by his father and you, your identity came through your family. So for you to say, I'm going to go do something and then not do it, that would have shocked them. But for more, just as much would it be to say, I'm not going to follow you, but then to do it. That would have shocked the audience he was talking to. And the second story, and, and that is the beginning of the prodigal son, when you, if a younger son came and asked for his inheritance, that was like a full-on revolt against your family. And, and that's what sin is like. Sin is the breaking of these bonds of family that we have with God. And God looks at sin in a way that is far different than us. He looks at sin in a way that, and you think he'd be really angry with us when we sin. But he's like that father of the prodigal son. He's disappointed. He's saddened. Because we choose to move away from him. So if that's the case, then what is sin? Well, I think one of the biggest things is, and it's important to note, and that sin is suicide. It's not physical suicide, 
Because otherwise, none of us would be here. Because, as I said, we've all sinned today. But it is spiritual suicide. It is almost willingly separating ourselves from God. So it is, it is drastically something that we need to pay attention to. And I think we can look at another one of these stories that will help us understand even more. This will be the last one, I promise. I'm not going to read through this whole book, but it is a great book. There's a lot more detail in here, and I'm going in different directions than him. But Released. After 26 years of unconscious living in a cement square of shame and rape and boredom, a haircut, a used suit, a lead on a small job, and the world in front of him. Released. Released, but he comes back on weekends. He lingers outside the cold fence with its sharp razor wire. He gazes in at his old cement square of shame and rape and boredom. Released, and the world in front of him, but he comes back on weekends. The guards shrug and slowly shake their heads. See, there's a, there's a disconnect we have um, because we are freed, but we constantly we're going to go back. Um, and this this is a great story. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, "Lazarus, come out!" The man who had died came out, and his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, "Unbind him, and let him go." See. We are dead, but Jesus has freed us. And he says to Lazarus, unbind him, tells them to unbind him, take off the grave clothes that you are wearing because you are no longer dead. And when we go back to our sin and we dwell in our sinful ways, we are keeping the grave clothes on us. And I think that's important to realize. See, here's the thing. We are slaves of sin. In fact, Jesus says it. Uh, Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. We are set free. And this is the transition point because it's, it's hard talking about sin. It's hard talking about these real truths about what our separation from God looks like. But we have been set free. We have been set free. And I think that's a vitally important thing to realize that we should be moving away from the sin. We should be moving away. We are no longer slaves, but we have been adopted as sons. And Charles Spurgeon said this, If your sin is small, then your Savior will be small also. But if your sin is great, then your Savior must be great. Guys, our sin is great. And our Savior is great. And He can conquer all. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from unrighteousness. We say we have not sinned. We make him a liar, and his word is not in us. And this is this is what Jesus says about that, because we can look at what sin really is. 
He says, so if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. We sin against God, we sin against ourselves, and we sin against each other. We need to confess our sin, but it's not just a matter of saying it. It's knowing it in your heart. It's making reconciliation. And that has to be to one another. That has to be to God. That has to be declaring it to God. Um, One of the things, one of the quotes that I really like from Don Evert's book is this one. Admitting how bad our sin is does not muddy the grace of Jesus. Recognizing the true smell of sin brings it into full light for the first time. It compels us toward the true worship and love, frees us from the mediocre worship towards which, toward which these lie of light sin have compelled us for too long. And he's making this direct correlation that if, if we just say we're sinful, but we don't really deep down know how sinful we are, then our worship is going to be a very light, I mean, that's where you get in churches that seem so superficial. Whether they're singing contemporary music or traditional hymns, it doesn't matter. When you sit there, you don't feel like the heart of the congregation is in it. Because here's the thing. Worship comes out of a heart that is forgiven. A heart that knows that we have been freed from sin. So if we just say that we are sinful and we have this light view of sin... Well, then we don't know what we're really saved from. But if we see this deep and dark view of sin that Jesus reveals to us, then the cross is so much more beautiful. Because the thing is, the cross takes away our sins. Because Jesus came not to just preach and tell us how sinful we are and how separated we are from God, but to close that gap. He came to take the sins of the world upon himself. He came so that we can be restored to relationship with God. And if we don't know how broken that relationship is, then we don't fully feel freed. Because we aren't freed because we have yet to give up our sins. Paul writes in Romans, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's a free gift. It's what we have. It's what Jesus came for, and he says, I am here for you. He tells the woman at the well, I have life-giving water. He has life-giving water. He has come for that purpose. In Hebrews, we read this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. We have to run the race set before us because we are there. I think this is the the truest statement. The bold rallying cry of the gospel is never avoid sin. It has always been embrace sin life. The gospel's not about avoiding sin. I know we've just talked for 35 minutes, I can read time, about that. 
But the gospel never is about avoiding sin. It de- tells us what our sin looks like. Our sin is like a family violently broken apart on purpose. Our sin is what darkens our lives and separates us from a holy God that we can't reach on our own. But that's not what the gospel is about. It declares that to us. And we need to know that. And we need to know that deep down how depraved we are. But the gospel is about Jesus coming to strike down sin, to defeat death, and to restore our relationship with God. So all we have to do is put our trust in him. The one who was sent. The one who was prophesied about for thousands of years. Who came. Who conquered death. So that we look at sin this morning. And we look at how much separated we are on our own from God. We know there is a light. The light is Jesus Christ. And he came to give us life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that this morning, though we look upon the darkness that we have born in us, that you are glorified because even in the darkness, we have been freed. We've been set up to run and we no longer have broken legs, but we are able to run and run in your glory and run in your name. We pray that you give us legs, you give us hearts that can focus on you and run to you. So Father, I pray that we will worship you with hearts that are freed. That are freed because you have freed them. That are freed from the terrible weight that has borne us down and has thrown us into the sea. So we pray that we can be freed from that and that as we sing praises to you to close out our time together this morning, that we do so with lifted hearts. We do so with hearts that are praising you for what you've done in our lives. Because you are God, you are holy, you are king, and you have freed us for your glory. Pray all this through Jesus Christ our Lord.